I'd like to welcome Dr. Chow here today. Um, Dr. Chow received his medical degree from Albany Medical College in New York. He then went on to complete his anesthesiology residency here at University of Maryland, and then afterwards went on to complete a fellowship in critical care at George Washington University. Um, he then came back to us at University of Maryland, is currently assistant professor in the, the Department of Anesthesiology, and is our current uh, program director for our critical care fellowship in anesthesiology. Um, his research interests include the novel treatment methods for vasoplegia and septic shock. And today he'll be talking to us about rescue medications for the treatment of COVID-19 related shock. Welcome, Dr. Chow. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, originally, I was supposed to give a talk on uh, vasodilatory shock in uh, just generic septic shock. But um, given the fact that uh, the entire world is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought that it would be more relevant to craft a talk uh, to talk about rescue medications specifically for the treatment of COVID-19 related shock. I do have one disclosure. I do serve on the Speakers Bureau for La Jolla Pharmaceutical Company. Um, but despite that, uh, the talk today is going to be completely evidence-based. Um, it is uh, going to be very scientific, and uh, that company had uh, no input into any of the slides that I'm going to show you uh, today. So taking a look at COVID-19 and coronavirus in China, um, patients who have severe disease uh, severity um, about 6.4% of these patients develop septic shock, and about 15% of these patients develop ARDS. And if you take a look at just the patients who are admitted to the intensive care unit on mechanical ventilation, or patients who have mortality, the percentage of people who develop septic shock rises to 13%, and the percentage of patients who develop ARDS rises to 40%, which is a extraordinarily uh, high number. We encounter septic shock every single day um, in the ICU. Um, septic shock is a type of distributive shock um, that you can also see in anaphylaxis, um, that you can see in spinal shock from uh, high uh, C-spine injuries or from uh, misadventures in uh, OB. Um, we also encounter other forms of shock, such as uh, cardiogenic shock um, in the form of acute MIs, in the form of valvular heart diseases, um, and in the form of arrhythmias. And in COVID-19, we're finding that a lot of the patients are surviving their initial ARDS uh, only, only to succumb to uh, viral myocarditis uh, from arrhythmias. Um, I had a colleague in uh, New York City uh, yesterday. She was taking care of a patient, um, 30, 40 years old with COVID-19. Um, he survived the ARDS. Um, they unproned him. He was doing well. Um, and in the middle of the night, he went into second degree heart block, third degree heart block, and then asystole. So um, that is definitely a uh, important component in the patient's resuscitation um, is the treatment of uh, cardiogenic shock. Hypovolemic shock is another form of shock that uh, you and I encounter every day in the ED and in the ICU, whether it be from a hemorrhagic shock from a gun uh, hemorrhagic shock from a gunshot wound, or from uh, severe vomiting or um, diarrhea. Um, we also encounter uh, obstructive shock, uh, whether from a massive uh, PE, from a tension pneumothorax, or from a cardiac uh, tamponade. The majority of shock that we encounter every day in the ICU is from distributive shock, specifically from uh, septic uh, distributive shock. So uh, this was a study done by uh, Dan Sessler and his group from the uh, Cleveland Clinic. Um, and he took a look at 33,000 patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. And uh, during the study, he measured the uh, lowest uh, mean arterial pressure of the patients during the case. And not surprisingly, uh, when the mean arterial pressure started to fall below 65, 
patients started to develop higher incidences of acute kidney injury as well as post-op myocardial injury. And if you take a look at this, um, you can see that when patients were hypotensive for between one to five minutes, they were 1.2 times more likely to develop post-op AKI. And if they were then hypotensive for between six to 10 minutes, their rate, their uh, uh, odds ratio of developing post-op cardiac complications increased by 1.5 times. And then if they were hypotensive for greater than 20 minutes, their odds ratio of developing post-op myocardial injury essentially doubled. And you might think that 20 minutes is a very long time, but if you take into account that if you have a patient on the floor, it may take five minutes for the nurse to notice that the patient's hypotensive. It takes another five minutes for the nurse to page the resident or the advanced practice uh, provider to the bedside. It takes another five minutes for them to show up and another five to 10 minutes for them to initiate therapy with fluids or vasopressors. And you can see how easily 20 minutes uh, adds up. So we have plenty of drugs in our toolbox that can treat shock. Uh, we have uh, norepinephrine that has been around for at least half a century. Uh, we have phenylephrine, uh, epinephrine, dopamine, methylene blue, um, angiotensin II. And all of these medications, uh, at the end of the uh, chain, they were all have the same goal, and that is to increase smooth muscle contraction. But the way each medication gets there, uh, they all take a slightly different path by acting on slightly different receptors. So for norepinephrine and epinephrine and phenylephrine, they act on alpha-1 receptors. For vasopressin and for uh, terlipressin, um, they act on V1A receptors. And then for angiotensin II, that acts on angiotensin uh, type 1 receptors. And after activation of these receptors, that will cause uh, release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. It will lead to activation of calmodulin, which will then activate myosin light chain kinase, which will then cause smooth muscle contraction. So in the ICU, um, we can place patients on low-dose norepinephrine or high-dose uh, epinephrine, but uh, Placing patients on high-dose vasopressors will increase mortality. So this was a study done by Sivri and their group from Israel, um, and they did a multivariate logistic uh, analysis of patients who were on low-dose pressors, which was defined as less than 40 mics per minute of norepinephrine or epinephrine, or on high-dose uh, vasopressors defined as greater than 40 mics per minute of norepinephrine or epinephrine. And they found that independently, just simply being on high dose vasopressors increased your odds ratio of, of mortality by 5.1 times. So you have a patient um, in the ICU and they are in shock and you can raise your norepinephrine from 0.5 to 0.6 to 0.7 mics per kilo per minute, and you can really raise the dose as high as you want, but we all know that that is going to come at a price because there's no such thing as a free lunch in the ICU. Um, and you and I have seen this. Uh, we see patients develop uh, distal limb ischemia. We see ischemia in the trunk. Uh, about a quarter of patients will, de will develop tongue ischemia, and patients will develop mesenteric ischemia. And that all leads to increased uh, morbidity um, in the ICU. And I think it's very important to talk about the pathogenesis of vasodilatory shock. Why do we get so hypotensive when we are infected? Well, uh, we have nitric oxide um, in our body, which is a potent uh, endogenous vasodilator. And in septic shock, we frequently see increased plasma concentrations of nitric oxide and overproduction 
of uh, nitro, nitric oxide um, in septic shock. And you can see nitric oxide here, it's highlighted um, in blue. Um, and uh, nitric oxide will act on guanylocyclase, which will then activate CGMP, and uh, that will inhibit myosin light chain kinase, which will then lead to smooth muscle relaxation. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a medication that might inhibit this pathway? And it turns out we do. And um, this is a drug um, called methylene blue, which uh, uh, a lot of people in the cardiac anesthesia world will use uh, post uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. And methylene blue will uh, inhibit nitric oxide synthase, and it will inhibit guanylocyclase so that it will prevent the smooth muscle relaxation from occurring. So what is the evidence for all of this clinically? Um, well, really the evidence in the literature is quite mixed. Um, personally, I find that uh, methylene blue works about 50% of the time. You flip a coin and uh, maybe one day it works, one day it doesn't. And the literature is consistent with that. Um, there are some studies like this one, which was done in uh, Buenos Aires in uh, Argentina, um, and they randomized patients to methylene blue or to placebo. And they found that in patients who got the methylene blue that the vasoplegia resolved within two hours, whereas in the, con in the control group, the vasoplegia was still present in 28% of patients after uh, 48 hours. This was um, another study that was done in Turkey um, which uh, randomized uh, 100 patients undergoing elective cabbages on uh, cardiopulmonary bypass um, to uh, methylene blue or to placebo. <clears throat> and the group found that patients who um, received the methylene blue had higher systemic vascular resistances during um, cardiopulmonary bypass. They also required less uh, norepinephrine support and less uh, ionotropic uh, support as well. <clears throat> However, the third study um, that we looked at was a study that was done at uh, Mount Sinai in um, New York City. And uh, in this study, this was a retrospective analysis of uh, 226 patients undergoing cardiac surgery, and they potentially matched these patients of in pairs to assess the effect of methylene blue on um, outcomes. And they found that in these patients um, that the uh, in-hospital mortality was uh, extremely high and it was uh, much higher in patients who uh, received the methylene blue than in patients who did not. Also, um, they found that patients uh, who received the methylene blue had a higher incidence of renal failure higher incidence of tracheostomies, and they also spent uh, more days in the ICU. So the evidence out there for methylene blue is quite mixed, um, and personally, I find it works about, um, about half of the time. So what do you do for a patient that uh, is hypotensive and is on escalating pressors, their lactate is escalating, um, and despite the methylene blue um, and your norepi, epi, and vasopressin, they still remain hypotensive. Well, usually my first go-to rescue agent is steroids. And uh, the reasoning for this is based on the approaches trial, which was a trial that was a multi-center trial, mainly done in France. Um, and they examined the use of hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone in uh, septic shock. And these uh, patients got uh, 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone Q6 for seven days. They also received fludrocortisone, 50 mics uh, Q24 hours for seven days. And the patients who received these steroids uh, spent less time on the mechanical ventilator. They spent less time on vasopressors. They spent, uh, they had more organ failure free days, and they also had a significantly increased probability of survival, which you can see here in the Kaplan-Meier survival curve. And I say usually I reach for this because in COVID-19, the evidence for steroids is actually quite the opposite. Um, so this was a paper that was published in The Lancet um, about uh, a month ago. 
Um, and they took a look at the use of steroids in MERS and in SARS. And they found that patients who received steroids in MERS, that they had delayed clearance of viral RNA from the respiratory tract, but also delayed clearance of viral RNA from the blood. And specifically in influenza, they found that steroids actually increases mortality um, by 1.7 times. And this wasn't a small study. This was actually a quite large uh, meta-analysis of 10 studies which consisted of 6,500 patients. About a week ago, um, there was a paper that came out of uh, China. Um, this was published in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine. And these authors specifically looked at the use of uh, solumedrol um, in patients with ARDS. And if you take a look at their Kaplan-Meier survival curves, um, you can see that patients who receive the solumedrol had significant uh, uh, survival benefits if they got the steroids than if they didn't. Um, things to consider for this study, the N in the overall study was 201 patients, but then the N in the uh, cohort with ARDS, uh, which is uh, what you see here, the N is only 84. Um, so you kind of have to take this with a grain of salt um, because the World Health Organization as of two weeks ago, uh, specifically recommends to not routinely giving uh, systemic corticosteroids uh, for the treatment of uh, COVID-19. Um, and specifically, they recommend that uh, clinicians have to balance uh, the potential small reduction in mortality uh, with the potential downside of prolonged shedding of coronavirus um, in the respiratory tract um, which is uh, something that has been seen in, uh, uh, in MERS. So you have a patient who is septic, they are on high dose pressors, you've tried methylene blue, um, and you have specifically avoided uh, the use of steroids. So what can you do next? Um, other rescue therapies that are in the literature um, uh, talk about vitamin B12 or hydroxycobalamin. The evidence in the literature is actually quite scarce. Um, there are only a few case reports uh, and case series in the literature. Um, the two largest case series only consisted of uh, 30 to 40 patients. Um, so the evidence for the use of hydroxycobalamin is uh, quite weak. I personally have used uh, this drug about five times. Um, and uh, in all five cases, uh, the blood pressure will increase when the hydroxycobalamin infusion is going in. But as soon as you stop the infusion, you are right back at square one with a MAP of 40 and a systolic blood pressure of uh, 70. What about vitamin C? Uh, vitamin C has been uh, in the press uh, a lot uh, over the past years, uh, specifically relating uh, to the treatment of uh, septic shock. And the main study that got vitamin C um, into the literature was the study that was done by Paul Merrick. Um, this was a study done at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Um, and he and his group took a look at uh, 94 patients who were in uh, severe sepsis or in septic shock um, between uh, June of 2015 and July of 2016. Now, why did Paul Merrick choose vitamin C instead of vitamin D or vitamin E? Well, ascorbic acid or vitamin C is involved in the endogenous synthesis of catecholamines. Um, it is required to convert L-tyrosine into L-dopa, as well as the conversion of dopamine into endogenous uh, norepinephrine. And frequently, vitamin C levels are depleted in patients with sepsis, and it's also a potent antioxidant and free radical uh, scavenger. So his protocol um, was to administer vitamin C uh, for uh, four days, uh, 1.5 grams Q6 hours, as well as hydro, uh, hydrocortisone 
50 Q6 for seven days, and then IV thiamine 200 uh, BID for four days. And the results that were reported from this trial were actually quite astonishing because uh, if you take a look here um, at the um, differences in mortality between the control and the treatment, um, the blue is the actual mortality. Um, you can see a 30% uh, or absolute uh, reduction in mortality by from 40% to 10%, which is quite a large difference because it's almost it's very difficult to uh, show a mortality benefit in any critical care trial. And to be able to show such a dramatic um, decrease in mortality is um, quite profound. Um, you have to take a look at the uh, design of the trial, however, because this was a single center uh, retrospective study. It utilized a before after design. It was not blinded. And most importantly, there were three simultaneous interventions that were used. So how do we know that the improved clinical outcomes was due to vitamin C and not from the hydrocortisone, which almost 60% of the patients in the control group received, or whether it was due from the thiamine? So a follow-up study to this um, was the Citrus Ali uh, trial. Um, which took a look at the effect of vitamin C on organ failure and sepsis and respiratory failure. It was a, a randomized control trial of 167 patients uh, with sepsis and ARDS, um, and these patients received vitamin C or uh, placebo in seven different ICUs. They looked at the change in SOFA score at uh, 96 hours, as well as changes in uh, biomarkers um, at 168 hours. So you can see here that the uh, CRP levels did not change uh, or they were not statistically different between the vitamin C and the placebo groups. You can see that the thrombomodulin differences were also not uh, statistically different uh, between the groups. And you can also see that the SOFA scores uh, were also not different uh, between the groups. But then you take a look at figure three of their study. And in this figure, it's showing that patients who receive vitamin C had a significantly decreased uh, mortality than if they got placebo. Furthermore, um, in this study, they uh, reported as secondary outcomes that patients who got the vitamin C had more ICU free days, they had more hospital free days, um, and they were all statistically significant. But then you read uh, the, st the statistical methods that they used, and they did not account for multiple comparisons in the secondary outcomes. And especially when you have 48 secondary outcomes, by chance, you're going to get a significant outcome in one of those 48 outcomes. So you have to compare for multiple comparisons, um, whether it's through a simple Bonferroni correction or through other uh, advanced statistical techniques. Um, so if you do apply the Bonferroni correction to uh, these secondary outcomes, they would not be uh, statistically significant. Another study examining vitamin C um, is the vitamins trial. Uh, this was primarily done in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and in this study, they found that there was no difference in uh, the vasopressor doses, whether or not you got the vitamin C or a control. And if you um, got vitamin C, there was also no difference, uh, no statistical difference um, in your um, outcomes. Now, what about the use of another medication, such as angiotensin II? So, Angiotensin II was examined uh, at George Washington University. Um, this was a study done in uh, 2014 by uh, Mink Chala, Larry Bussey, and Mike Seneth. And this was a pilot trial of 20 patients who were in uh, vasodilatory shock. And they found that uh, patients who received angiotensin II had a significant a decrease in the background uh, norepinephrine dose. 
The way angiotensin 2 works is through the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So the kidney will detect a state of low perfusion pressure, and when that occurs, it will release renin. Renin will cause the conversion of angiotensinogen, which is produced in your liver, into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 will then be converted by ACE, angiotensin-converting enzyme, into angiotensin 2. And then angiotensin 2 will then act on your angiotensin type 1 receptors. When angiotensin 2 is released, um, I said that it uh, acts on your angiotensin type 1 receptors, and that will lead to vasoconstriction, and that will lead to activation of your adrenal gland and your HPA axis to release aldosterone and cortisol, and it'll also lead to free water absorption and increased sodium reabsorption. And when you combine all of these effects, it will lead to our ultimate goal, which is a increase in mean arterial pressure. So what is the evidence behind this? So the original ATHOS trial was then uh, converted into a phase three FDA approved trial called the ATHOS-3 study. And this was a multi-center, double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled trial of 344 patients in septic shock. And these patients were on high-dose catecholamines of uh, greater than 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine for a minimum of six hours. And the patients in this study were all uh, very sick. The uh, median uh, Apache 2 score was uh, 27. Um, 97% of patients were on norepinephrine, and 67% of patients were on uh, vasopressin. And if you take a look at the uh, vasopressor load, 83% of these patients prior to enrollment were on uh, two or more vasopressors, and almost half of these patients were on three or more vasopressors. So these are um, extremely sick patients with vasodilatory shock. So on enrollment, patients were randomized into one of two groups. So if a patient was randomized into the uh, placebo arm, they didn't just get a bag of normal saline um, and no vasopressors because that would be unethical. Um, they received their institution's standard of care vasopressors. So whether that was norepinephrine followed by vasopressin or norepinephrine followed by phenylephrine, they just got their institution's standard vasopressors. But on top of that, they also got a bag of normal saline to go along with it. If you were randomized into the angiotensin II arm, you also got your institution's standard of care vasopressors, but instead of the bag of normal saline, you also got a bag of angiotensin II to ha hang along the side. The primary outcome of this study was a MAP increase by 10 points or a MAP increase from 65 to 75. And a MAP of 75 sounds uh, a little bit fishy because no one really targets a MAP of 75 in the ICU. But this MAP goal was actually quite deliberate because this was a phase three FDA approved study and the investigators had to prove to the FDA that angiotensin II was a efficacious vasopressor and not a efficacious catecholamine sparing agent. The only way you can prove that it's anything is a good vasopressor is by demonstrating that it can actually increase your mean arterial pressure, which is why um, they had to use a MAP goal of 10 points or a MAP increase from 65 to 75. After um, hour three of the trial, um, the MAP goals were then relaxed back to the uh, normal level of uh, 65. So what did the investigators find? They found that patients who uh, got the angiotensin, that almost 70% of these patients hit their primary endpoint by hour three of the study, versus only 23% of patients who just got the standard of care vasopressors. 
Furthermore, there was a significant increase in the cardiovascular SOFA score by hour 48 and a significant decrease in the dose of background norepinephrine. And you can see that this uh, change in the uh, curve is quite apparent uh, right at the beginning, right at hour one. Immediately, patients who received angiotensin II, um, they had a significant reduction in background norepinephrine dose, and this was significant all the way to hour 48. ATHOS-3 um, was not powered to detect mortality. So this was a study that was powered to detect a difference in blood pressure, not a difference in mortality. Um, despite this, you can see a separation of the Kaplan-Meier survival curve um, all the way to day 28. Um, however, um, it was not uh, technically statistically significant. The p-value was uh, 0.12. In terms of adverse events, um, Adverse events of any grade were not statistically different uh, between the groups. In fact, uh, patients who received the angiotensin II had uh, less uh, overall adverse events, but this was not statistically uh, significant. But if you take a look at the uh, incidence of uh, venous thromboembolic events, or DVTs, in the study, they reported that 1.8% uh, of patients in the ANG2 group got a DVT versus zero in the placebo group. This difference was not statistically uh, significant, um, and these numbers are actually quite different than what you'll find on the package insert. So why the difference? Um, on the package insert, um, you'll see that uh, the rate of DVT was 13% in the angiotensin II group and 5% in the placebo group, but those numbers take into account both clinically significant and clinically non-significant DVTs. The numbers reported in the New England Journal paper take into account only clinically significant DVTs, and if you just take into account those significant DVTs, then the uh, differences between the groups are not statistically uh, significant. Nonetheless, um, if you start a patient on angiotensin II, you got to put them on concomitant uh, DVT prophylaxis, and that is what um, the FDA is recommending. So after ATHOS-3 was published, there has been a couple of uh, post hoc analyses that have been done on the data looking at specific populations, and they have all found mortality benefit in subsets of the population. So the first study was a, a study looking at patients with uh, Apache 2 scores um, greater than 30, and they found that patients who received angiotensin II had lower mortality um, if they got the angiotensin II, 54% mortality, uh, versus 79% mortality in patients who got uh, standard of care vasopressors alone. In patients who have acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy, these patients also had significant 28-day survival. So if, you, if a patient got angiotensin II, the 28-day survival was 53% versus only 29% in the placebo group. But not only that, these patients also got off renal replacement therapy uh, uh, at a higher rate by day seven. So patients who received the angiotensin II, 37% of those patients were off RRT or liberated from RRT by day seven versus only 15% of the patients in the standard of care group. And that number is uh, definitely uh, statistically significant. What about other um, post-hoc analyses? Um, this uh, was a study uh, that was published by HAM and their group um, in, uh, at the University of Minnesota, um, and it was published last year. And they specifically looked at patients who rapidly responded to angiotensin II, which they defined as a decrease in angiotensin II dose to less than or equal to five nanograms per kilo per minute by minute 30 of the infusion. And they found that patients who did rapidly respond, which is the light blue, um, they had increased survival than patients who did not rapidly respond. And 
that finding in itself is actually not that significant because if you if I'm able to wean you off norepinephrine or vasopressin or epinephrine by minute 30, you are also going to have decreased survival. But what was uh, very interesting about this study was that HAM also measured the angiotensin II levels in these patients. So it turns out that the patients who rapidly responded also were angiotensin II deficient, and they measured this on every patient. The mean angiotensin II concentration was 128 in the rapid response group, and the mean angiotensin II was 420 in the non-rapid response group, which suggests that if you are angiotensin II deficient and then you replace it, uh, re replace your angiotensin II, then you may be able to modulate your uh, probability of survival. Related to this is a study um, published by Belomo um, and his group uh, from the University of Melbourne. Um, this was another uh, post hoc analysis of the data, um, and this was just published last month in uh, Critical Care. They specifically looked at the ratio of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. Patients with a high ratio of ang1 to ang2 presumably will have a deficit in their angiotensin converting enzyme. And that's why you have such a high level of angiotensin 1 as, com as compared to um, angiotensin 2. And that's exactly what they found. Um, they found that patients who had the high level of, who had the high ratio, meaning that they were probably angi angiotensin 2 deficient, they had decreased survival. And patients with a ratio uh, less than 1.63 had increased survival um, when they got the, um, uh, the ratio of uh, angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. And since ATHOS-3, there have been numerous studies and numerous case reports um, examining ANG1 or ANG2 um, in vasoplegic syndrome, in uh, post-cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, Osterman and Kyle Gunnerston uh, from Michigan took a look at the use of angiotensin II in ECMO. Um, Patrick Coleman took a look at the use of angiotensin II in decompensated cirrhosis. He's from uh, San Antonio Military Medical Center. And Larry Bussey and his group uh, reported the use of angiotensin II in ACE inhibitor overdose. So how does all of this um, and how do all these studies and case reports and findings relate to the current problem that we have facing us today, which is COVID-19? As of 12.15 Eastern time, we have over 490,000 patients around the world who are confirmed positive. The US has 69,000 cases as of around noon Eastern today. And I'm pretty sure by the end of the day, we will surpass Italy. And by tomorrow, we will surpass China and we will be the epicenter of this pandemic. As of noon today, the CDC uh, re released numbers from uh, all across uh, the U.S. Um, we have outbreaks in Washington, in California, as you know, um, in New Jersey. And the worst hit state is New York City with almost 33,000 patients. So what can we do to potentially help treat these patients with COVID-19 induced shock? And why is angiotensin II potentially the ideal agent for this? And I go back to the mechanism of angiotensin I and angiotensin II uh, synthesis. So angiotensin I, if you remember, is converted into angiotensin II by ACE, angiotensin converting enzyme. That allows angiotensin II to act on the angiotensin type 1 receptors to cause vasoconstriction. Additionally, ACE, or angiotensin-converting enzyme, is required for the breakdown of bradykinin, which is a extremely potent vasodilator. It's also required for the conversion of bradykinin 1.7 into bradykinin 1.5. 
And why do I mention all of this? Because if you go back to the findings from China, there are a significant number of patients who develop septic shock and ARDS. There's even a higher percentage of patients in the ICU, about 40%, who develop ARDS. And what is the significance of ARDS and septic shock to ACE? Well, both processes are pro-inflammatory processes. ARDS will specifically uh, increase the alveolar capillary uh, uh, membrane permeability. It will decrease surfactant production as well as increase cytokine and interleukin production. And all of that leads to severe pulmonary endothelial damage. Guess what enzyme lives on the pulmonary endothelium? And that is ACE. And ACE has been shown to be severely dysfunctional in ARDS. And if we're seeing 40% of patients with COVID-19 in the ICU with ARDS, then maybe we should be doing something to treat that. So what happens when you have dysfunctional ACE? So normally, bradykinin gets broken down by ACE, but when you have dysfunctional ACE, you start getting a accumulation, an excess of bradykinin, which is a uh, potent vasodilatory substance. Similarly, when you have dysfunctional ACE, angiotensin 1 cannot be converted into angiotensin 2 anymore, and you have an excess of angiotensin 1, which then has to be metabolized somehow, um, and it gets broken down into angiotensin 1-9 and angiotensin 1-7. What does angiotensin 1-7 do? ANG17 binds to your angiotensin type 2 receptors, which cause vasodilation. It binds to your B2 receptors, which cause vasodilation. It binds and activates your nitric oxide synthase, which leads to nitric oxide and vasodilation. And it also binds to your mass receptors, which also lead to severe vasodilation. So by administering exogenous angiotensin II and increasing your blood pressure, decreasing the amount of renin that is secreted, and decreasing your load of vasopressors, you may be able to, um, may be able to break this cycle by uh, allowing your pulmonary endothelium to heal so that you don't get into this vicious cycle of uh, hypotension and more hypotension. Taking a look at some of the structural aspects of COVID-19. Um, COVID-19 is uh, structurally very similar to SARS. Um, and these are the uh, renderings, uh, the 3D renderings of both of them. Um, the colored uh, molecule is COVID-19. The white molecule is uh, SARS. And they are structurally very similar. However, COVID-19 binds to ACE2 with 10 to 20 times the affinity as SARS. And this is the ACE2 binding site on COVID-19. And this is the mechanism by which COVID-19 enters your cell. So you have all of these ACE2s on your cell membrane, which are in blue. Your COVID-19s are on the outside, and it has to bind to ACE2 in order to gain access to the cell. So is there a potential role for angiotensin II? After all, you have COVID-19, which binds to ACE2, which is part of your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and you also have angiotensin II, which also works on your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. This is a paper that was uh, published by Ming Chala, um, in 2018, and he described how angiotensin II, when it is metabolized into angiotensin 1-7, this uh, metabolism, metabolism occurs by hydrolysis via ACE2. So angiotensin II is able to bind to ACE2. And if you have two uh, structures that bind to the same receptor, then you may be able to competitively inhibit the other structure by uh, putting out a lot of exogenous ANG2. And let me show you what I mean. 
So remember before um, COVID-19 was binding to ACE2, but if you administer exogenous angiotensin II, you can con competitively inhibit this process from occurring because angiotensin II also binds to ACE2. And in addition, there have been studies that have shown that angiotensin II downregulates ACE2 in humans in a in vitro study. It downregulates ACE2 in kidney and cardiac tissue in a in vivo study. And Des Hotel's group in uh, at a Louisiana a State University showed that angiotensin II was able to internalize and cause degradation of ACE2 activity. Furthermore, in cells that lack angiotensin type 1 receptors, this effect did not occur, which means that the internalization and degradation of ACE2 uh, happens in a angiotensin type 1 receptor dependent mechanism. So what does this mean? So um, you have COVID-19, which enters the cell through ACE2, and now you have exogenous angiotensin 2 that competitively inhibits ACE2. But now you also have angiotensin 2 that binds to your angiotensin type 1 receptor. And what happens? Your angiotensin 2 uh, causes the ACE2 to be internalized, downregulated, and then degraded in your lysosomes. And that is in addition to the hemodynamic effects of angiotensin 2 that are well studied and that we all already know about, which is vasoconstriction and activation of your HPA axis with your adrenal gland and your hypothalamus to cause release of aldosterone vasopressin, and increased sodium and water reabsorption, which all leads to increased mean arterial pressure. So we have plenty of, plenty of medications out there that can treat bread and butter shock. We have norepinephrine, which uh, acts on your sympathetic nervous system. We have vasopressin, which acts on your arginine vasopressin system. And we have angiotensin II, that can act on your renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And for bread and butter shock, um, the surviving sepsis guidelines recommends norepinephrine as first line as well as vasopressin as second line therapy. For COVID-19, I argue that perhaps we should be using a personalized approach to treatment of shock because of the unique pathophysiology of COVID-19, because we know COVID-19 binds to ACE2, and we know that angiotensin can competitively inhibit ACE2, as well as cause downregulation and internalization. So it would just make physiologic sense to use angiotensin II uh, for the treatment of shock in COVID-19. In addition, in COVID-19, you have an extremely high rate of ARDS, over 40%, and we know that ARDS leads to dysfunction in angiotensin-converting enzyme. So why not use a medication that targets that system so that you can break the cycle of hypotension? And we all know that there is already a widespread shortage of life-sustaining equipment, such as ventilators, CRT machines, ECMO circuits. There is a shortage of critical care personnel, such as RRT-trained nurses, intensivists, respiratory therapists. Um, we have a shortage of hospital resources, such as critical care beds, N95s, other forms of personal protective equipment. And every single RRT-free, hypotension-free, ventilator-free, and ICU-free day is going to matter in this pandemic. And the physiologic rationale for using ANGE2 and COVID-19-related shock is strong. Um, and the gravity of the current situation mandates that we think outside of the box and start using alternative therapies that may make physiologic sense. And these are some of the arguments that we 
laid out in a editorial that was just published on Tuesday. Um, it was published um, very rapidly in uh, anesthesia and analgesia. Um, it's available for free um, online uh, as an open access article um, on their website. And we uh, describe our rationale for the use of ANG2 in uh, COVID-19. And just today, uh, we found out that a second editorial that we wrote is also has been accepted into critical care. Um, the PDF is not available yet um, online because it was literally accepted three hours ago. Um, but that should be coming out online, uh, open access for free um, in the next week. And that also lays out our argument for the use of uh, angiotensin II for the purpose of uh, downregulation of uh, ACE2. And I'll leave you with this. A lot of what we talked about today uh, relating to ACE2 downregulation has been studied in vivo and in vitro, but what we're actually really interested in is in clinical results and in clinical outcomes. And ANG2 has never been studied in COVID-19 before. There has never been a RCT of ANG2 in COVID-19 um, induced shock. But in Italy, Dr. Zangrillo and Dr. Landoni, they have used angiotensin angiotensin II extensively for the treatment of COVID-19 related shock. And I am very hopeful that Dr. Landoni will be publishing their data soon um, so that the world can hear about their experiences with ANG2 and with COVID-19 and so that he can pass his knowledge down from Italy to the US um, to us in uh, Maryland, to you in California um, to the people in New York so that we can learn from his experiences with this drug and potentially save some more lives um, on the front line. Thank you very much um, to all of the busy healthcare workers who are taking time out of their busy day and taking time away from their patients to listen to this talk. I uh, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to listen to me. Um, and um, with that, I'll take any questions either uh, virtually or you can uh, feel free to send me an email. It's on the bottom right uh, of the screen. Thank you very much.